So prior to this message, we had looked at three people. It was right after the death of Stephen. It was three pictures that demonstrate responses that, that, that we can expect as we bring the gospel into hostile territory. When we're, when we're shining as lights in the midst of darkness, we had Saul who was furious, Philip who was faithful, and Simon who was a fraud. These responses are not strange, they're not unique or rare. They're the most likely responses that you're going to see to Christianity. Some are going to get angry and they're going to lash out like Saul. Some are going to fake the funk. They will be attracted to many things within the church, within Christianity, or perhaps they're simply drawn to what they think they can get from God or from being religious, but it's insincere, and that insincerity will always come to light. And then there are those that will respond to the call of Christ with faith and follow Him faithfully, as we saw with Philip. We witnessed as he went to, to one of the least desirable places a Jew could go, a place called Samaria. But what we didn't see is he didn't complain. He didn't question. He simply obeyed. And we got to see many come to faith in Christ through Philip's faithfulness in that place. Now, our study this morning continues following faithful Philip and his faithfulness to the Lord. Though Simon the sorcerer feigned coming to Christ for money, for power, there were many in Samaria that came sincerely, as seen in verses 14 and 15. Peter and John came to Samaria to investigate what was going on. It says, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Peter and John came to see what was going on in Samaria with Philip, and it was just as they had heard. The Holy Spirit had actually delayed His coming so that Peter and John could see and testify to the fact that Jesus had once again come to the Samaritans. Verse 25 of our study in Acts 8 picks up shortly thereafter. It says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Peter and John, they joined Philip in bearing fruit in Samaria and the surrounding area on their way back to Jerusalem. And we rejoin our friend faithful Philip in verse 26. Now what we're going to do is read from 20, verse 26 to the end of the chapter to see all that happened with Philip following his work in Samaria. One of the most encouraging and remarkable things that we're going to see this afternoon, or this morning rather, I'm used, I just got used to saying this afternoon, and now it's still morning, so that's exciting. This morning we get to see how much God can and will do with a single, simple, faithful heart. We look at guys like Saul who will be Paul. That's what we get to look at later today. And who will change the world. And it's easy to get lost in that. It's easy to be intimidated by that. Though, though we shouldn't really. But we get intimidated because most of us won't change the entire world as Paul was used to do. But guess what? God didn't ask you to. Most of us won't change the whole world. But if you can be used to change a single heart, you feel like you're on top of the world. That's how the kingdom is one, one heart at a time. Did you know that the heavens rejoice when this happens, when one sinner comes to repentance, comes to Christ by faith? In Luke 15, 10, it says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This event also demonstrates another remarkable thing, and that is how much God can and will do for a single faithful heart. So we're going to see what He can do with a single faithful person, and what God is willing to do for a single faithful seeking heart. The man in our account had one of God's children taken directly to him in the exact moment that he needed him most. Concerning Philip, we don't read anything that tells us that there's anything remarkable about Philip. 
He didn't have the knowledge and the background of Paul. He didn't have the, the rough testimony. He wasn't one of the original 12 who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. No, we, he, was, he was just a normal guy that was changed by the grace and mercy and the love of Christ. Started as just a humble servant in his local congregation, in his local fellowship in Acts 6. And then he goes to a place where most people didn't want to go and he showed them the same love and grace that he had been shown. And hundreds of lives were changed for eternity. I want to be like Philip. My dear friends, Pastor Joel and his lovely wife Irene are like Philip. They came somewhere no one else wanted to go, and they faithfully obeyed the Lord ever since. They said yes decades ago, and they keep saying yes every day, every week. And my wife and I have been so blessed and encouraged by that. If Philip's story ended there, we would say that was a job well done and a life well lived. But I love that it doesn't end there. I love today's account even more than the one that precedes it. There's this great revival in Samaria. And don't get me wrong, I love seeing large numbers of people come to Christ being saved, you know, as much as the next pastor. But let's be honest, that's rare. And what I love even more is seeing how far, again, God will go to reach one single person. How God will move heaven and earth to save just one who is seeking him. I told my wife in coming here from Texas that if God brought us up here only to teach one person, lead one person and teach that one person about Jesus until he takes me home, that is one more person than I deserve to have listened to me. And he's been so kind and allowed me to teach his word to all of you today. You see, Philip will be a part of such an encounter. I'm, I'm going to spend more time on this than, than on the, the revival because of two reasons. One, I want you to see the amazing grace and love of God on display and in the lengths that he will go to reach a single person. Two, as we said before, most of us won't be a Paul. And I don't say that to discourage you. I hope that relieves you of some pressure, right? Most of us won't be a Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie. But we can all be a Philip. A simple, humble Christian serving faithfully in a local body, walking with Jesus and being used by him to reach one person at a time. Another important truth to consider as we continue through Acts 8 today. In Isaiah 55, God declares, My ways are not your ways, my thoughts not your thoughts. If we saw the great revival that unfolded in the beginning of the chapter, we might conclude, Philip, you need to stay there. Why, why leave? Look at all the people getting saved. Philip, you should just remain there, being fruitful, being effective. When we told some that we'd be leaving Texas, they were confused. If they knew I had cowboy boots on right now, they would be like, what is wrong with him? You, you're like, wait, don't all Texans run? No, they don't. And especially this one, I said, oh, never me. And I, and I told my wife, we, we rock our boots when we get a little homesick for Texas. But if they knew I was representing for them today, they'd be proud, I'm sure, and shocked. They're like, what? But when I told them I'd be leaving Texas to come here, they were all really confused. But... We are most useful to God when we are obedient to Him. It doesn't matter how many gifts you have or resources at your disposal. If you're not doing what He asks you to do, you are chasing the wind. That's the imagery used by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes after a wasted life. And, and whenever I taught through that book, that was the first book I ever taught cover to cover as a pastor. And the imagery is of chasing the wind. It's like a little boy chasing bubbles in the front yard. That, that used to be me. I used to love doing that. My mom would and I'm running, and you know, I get so excited, and I catch one, and it would pop. And then another one, and I chase it. Life outside of Christ is like that. 
before Philip gets too comfortable, God is going to redirect him and we get an idea about how much God cares for every individual that he has called. If we see someone being used like Philip was used in Samaria, we might say, well, well now, now he should be moving on, right? He's grown to, to accomplish bigger and better things. He, he went from serving tables and, and now he's this great evangelist in Samaria. But again, God is not concerned with the trivial things that we are concerned with. And if a Christian ever thinks themselves above a small crowd or speaking with a single individual, then you'll not be used to reach the large crowd, larger crowds and lead those large revivals. You see, Philip's humble obedience will remind us why God chose to use him in the first place. And I pray that we'd follow in his example. Let's read our passage together in Acts 8. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand all that you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, and it's from Isaiah 53, though it wouldn't have said that for him. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or another? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture. He told him about the good news of Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And not all manuscripts contain this verse, verse 37, but it says, Then Philip says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In verse 38, He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. And Philip found himself at Azotus. And he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So verse 26, we, got, we have an angel of the Lord says to him, Rise, go toward the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, this desert place. There was a fruitful work going on in Samaria, and God says, I want you to go south, and I want you to go to this desert place in Gaza. In our human understanding, that doesn't make sense, right? We might have assumed that God wanted him to stay there. Things are going great. They're real successful. Why would you jeopardize that? Why would you leave? You see, we, we definitely have a bad habit of thinking God wants us to stay where it's safe and where it's comfortable. But even a cursory reading of the scriptures will prove that to be false. God told us to leave fruitful ministry in the, in the great nation of Texas. And he said, go to the barren wastes of Washington. I, I mean that spiritually, not, not physically, of course. See, one of the first things that gripped me about this place was its natural beauty. But it didn't take long to notice the startling contrast. And I began asking God, God, how can such a beautiful place be so dark? It's ironic that this place where God's creative light shines so brightly that it would be so spiritually dark. And then I remember what happened in a garden that was perfect. You see, that's, that's why my wife and I came here. That's, why, that's what we told all our friends in Texas. We, we, they said, what are you doing going there? I said, where is light needed most? 
where it's dark. We love, to get, we, love, we love Christmas. One of my favorite things about Christmas, driving around with my wife looking at Christmas lights, and it's all these lights gathered together on a strand, and it's beautiful when you get to see them, but why do they stand out so much? Because the backdrop of the darkness. You can be a little candle, and if it's pitch black, that candle is going to illuminate brightly, and that's us. You see, we love Texas. We love the people, the culture. But you know what? We loved God more. We love him more. So when he said, leave those things, we couldn't say no. God told Philip to leave fruitful ministry in Samaria to go to this desert place. And notice the Lord gave him no more details than that. Gave him no reason, nothing. He just said, he sent an angel, a messenger said, go south toward Gaza. And Philip obeyed. What an incredible example at least when God told us to come here, he told us why. He says, I, I want you to go to Washington and, and start a church, teach the word. When Philip was asked to leave Samaria, God just said, go. And he did. And all of us, beloved, are called to that level of obedience. Whether God tells you the reason or not, you are to obey. And he has every right to ask us to do whatever he wishes. That's what Lord means. Lord in Greek, kyrios, it literally translates master. We're to obey the Lord, our master, like Philip did. Whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, whether it makes sense to us or not, when he asks us to do something, the only correct answer is, yes, Lord. Did you know that that's how you can tell if you really love the Lord? If you actually do what he says? There are all kinds of people that, that say they believe in God and say they love God but you can actually check to see if it's true. You see, Jesus gave us a way to check. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, obey my commandments. He meant it so much, he said it again. You know, when God repeats something, he really means it, kind of like our parents when we were younger and in trouble. He reiterates the verse, chapter 14, verse 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and reveal myself to him. You see, if you truly love him, You'll do what he says. It's that simple. And only those who do what he says will know him more. Jesus asks a tough, poignant question in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. One of the, a question that many Western Christians need consider. He says, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? So that was one of the things that I was actually excited about coming here. Washington is still the most unchurched state in the country. In Texas, as Pastor Joe was joking earlier, everyone thinks they're saved. You feel, I call it country music Christianity. They, they, they just automatically assume because they grew up in the Bible Belt that they're a Christian, but there's no obedience, there's no commitment to Christ and to His mission, to the Great Commission. You see, it's clear in the Word that obedience definitely matters to the Lord. Philip obeyed unquestionably. God doesn't have to explain Himself, and we don't always get to know all the details. But when we obey... He never disappoints. Amen. Amen. Philip could have come with a hundred reasons to stay, and they would have made sense on paper. Well, well, Lord, I'm comfortable here. This is like home to me now. And, and oh, well, Lord, there are lost people here too. And Lord, I got a network of people here that could help me, and I could start the church here. You see, that was me at first. I wasn't like Philip. Well, but Lord, you know, there's a, there's a part on the east side. Until God took one of my dear brothers, Pastor Ellis, sent him over there, and he, I was like, oh, oh. Maybe my wife was on to something about that whole Washington thing. 
Philip offered no excuses, no rationalizations. He responded to the call obediently. Philip is, is receiving a call in verse 26. The call is issued from the angel of the Lord. Notice it's, it's an angel, not the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament specifically, it's a, a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus. Here it's simply an angel, a messenger of God sent to Philip. This angel tells him, go to Gaza, use the desert path. He had to be specific because there were two paths that went from Jerusalem to Gaza. And the Spirit commanded specifically that Philip take the one that was used less often, the desert one. And it's an interesting thought to consider. In your walk, in your service to the Lord, He will often command you to take the road less traveled. You see, the road less traveled is often the, mo the most difficult, but it's also the most glorious. The beginning of verse 27 is simple yet profound, and I've already said it. I'm going to keep saying it. And he rose and he went. As we said, when God says, do something, do it, it seems like such an obvious thing to say to a body of, of Christians, like, well, duh, right? Then why do so many of us fight it? It's not complicated. When God says to do something, we should obey. Notice also God didn't ask. He commands and has every right to do blood-bought saints. Now, in the rest of verse 27 and into verse 28, Luke introduces us to this man that God loves so much that first he sent his son to die for his sins and then sent a messenger specifically to him on this desert road one day that he might find him. It says, and there was this Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship, returning in his chariot and reading Isaiah. So here we meet the Ethiopian eunuch. We're not told his name, simply his job, his nationality, and a rather uncomfortable personal detail. If you know anything about history, a eunuch was a man that was emasculated and then charged with the duty of protecting the queen and her assets. If this were a company, he'd be the, the CFO, the chief financial officer. The emasculation was done to make sure that the man or men would not make a pass at the queen. And this eunuch was an official of, of Candace of Ethiopia, it says. If you're like, who's Candace? Well, Candace was not a, a name. It was her title. Just like you'd say Pharaoh or Caesar. It's not a name. It's a title. Candace was the same way. So this is a guy that Philip is about to encounter. A really important guy. We see something else about this man in verse 27. We see that he was an Ethiopian proselyte to Judaism. And he's returning from Jerusalem, reading his Bible, no less, or at least one of the books of the Bible. Luke tells us he had come to worship. He's returning home down this desert road, and he's reading Isaiah on the way there. He probably took this road because a man of his stature would have been really busy and having a desert, a long desert road, the long way home. He could think. He could read. Uninterrupted, because you know when he gets back, there's a bunch of stuff waiting for him. Responsibility is waiting for him when he gets home, so he took the long way. Being a court official, again, no doubt he would have been busy upon his return, so having this time to himself to think, reflect, and it's probably something he looked forward to. But I love that God sovereignly arranged this divine appointment between Philip and the Ethiopian. He had this long road to have an uninterrupted discussion about Jesus and about the scriptures that point to him but I'm getting ahead of myself. The eunuch is reading the scriptures, at least one of the books from them. Remember, he, he would not have had a cute little Bible like what is available to us. He would not have had an app to read his Bible on a device that fit neatly into his pocket. He would have had this large, obnoxious Old Testament scroll in his lap. 
And it's clear by all these little details that Luke gives us that this was an educated man, it was a religious man, and a very wealthy man. How do we know all this? These scrolls were very large and very expensive. See, it's not like in the West, people didn't have 12 Bibles laying around their house like some of us do. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. I probably have more than 12 different study Bibles and translations. But you see, they didn't even have the convenience of having all the books of the Bible in one place. They all were each on a scroll, some of them two scrolls when translated into Greek, hence why we have like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And usually each synagogue had a copy of the scrolls. People would gather on the Sabbath to hear what the rabbi had to say about them, what rabbis were saying in rabbinical circles. That's why Jesus stunned many when he came and, and he spoke on his own. The rabbis would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. And they kind of compare notes. Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And he shocked his listeners. Not only were the books of the Bible difficult to acquire, even if you had one, you had to be able to read it. We not only take our Bibles for granted, we take our literacy for granted as well. The Ethiopian was able to read, and he was able to afford a copy of the prophet Isaiah. We mentioned he's a religious man, but different from his fellow Ethiopians. I'm sure there was a lot of religious people in Ethiopia, but rather than worship the pagan gods of Ethiopia, this man in the royal court of Candace knew these gods to be false He's on a journey that started before this road. And though he had found Judaism, he appears again to be a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. It's clear that he's not satisfied. His soul is still left longing for more, and rightfully so. You see, Jesus didn't have much good to say about the state of Judaism in the first century. Just one example, but one of his most severe, Matthew 23, 15, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea with a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make him twice the son of hell as you. This Ethiopian guy, in seeking the true God, found Judaism in a sad state of affairs. Jesus also had this to say in Luke eleven fifty two: 52, Woe to you, experts of the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you've hindered those who were entering. You see, their traditions, their misunderstandings and misinterpretations were keeping people from truly knowing God. So this Ethiopian guy, right in seeing truth in Judaism, Paul will later write, you know, the, the law was a beautiful thing, but the law couldn't save. It could only point out our flaws. So he's probably looking at this book. He's looking into the law of God, and he's like, I know this is true, but I'm still in trouble. He would have encountered the true God and His righteous standard, but still would have been lost and empty because His sin, like ours, broke God's righteous standard, separating Him from the true God. He had wealth, was still searching. He had power, he's still searching. He had knowledge and even religion, but was still searching. Why? Because he didn't have what mattered most. He didn't have who mattered most? Jesus. The very one being spoken of in the very text he was reading that day when God will bring Philip to his doorstep or the steps of his chariot. And I would add that the Ethiopian was seeking God in the only place he can be found. Not in Judaism, but in the scriptures. Not in dead religiosity and a dead religious system, but in the living word of God. 
Romans makes it clear that the created world screams of God's existence and our hearts cry out for reconciliation with God. We know that we're sinners. His law written on our hearts, Romans 1 says. This man is truly seeking. And Hebrews eleven six says this, without faith it is impossible to please God, but anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He began to demonstrate faith. He, he had even begun to act upon that faith, drawn to worship God in Jerusalem, but knowing he's missing something. Drawn to learn about God, which is why he's, he's seeking him in the word of God, but he's almost frustrated when he's like, Philip comes up, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? It's important to note that this man doesn't know God yet. He is seeking God. He is seeking Him in all the right ways, on all the right terms thus far. And God rewards those that diligently seek Him. What's the reward? He is. God is. Eternal life is. Jesus said to know God and eternal life are one and the same. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, I often get this question. Well, what about people seeking God through other faiths? They're simply not seeking God. That upsets some people. How, how can you say that? How can you say they're not seeking Him? And I ask, how can you say that they are? Make no mistake, there are well-meaning, seeking people lost in false religions, just like our friend here, the Ethiopian eunuch. And what we're seeing is God will meet those that are seeking Him truly in their hearts, but only He truly knows. There's a book I mentioned last week that I'll mention today. Nabil Qureshi was a Muslim convert to Christianity. He wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And he reminds me a lot of this guy. He's with the Lord now. He had cancer that just ravaged his body. He's around my age too, and it just broke my heart when he went to go be with the Lord. But an incredible read. Now, another thing we must consider about these other so-called faiths, Buddhism is atheistic. They're seeking enlightenment, not God. They want to feel spiritual without having a spiritual being telling them what to do. Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Islam makes God inaccessible, just like Judaism of the first century. Why? Because you only get to him by being good enough, which is something we know we cannot do. But you see, this is highly appealing to the self-righteous flesh. The self-righteous heart is convinced that what? It's a good person. I'm a good person, but we're not. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the, the wording in Greek is all have fallen short and continually fall short. We're not. If we learn anything from our Ethiopian friend this afternoon or this morning is that if someone is seeking God genuinely, God will peel back the layers of falsehood and reach that individual. Historically up to this point, Judaism has been the only faith the true and living God has revealed himself through. But Judaism doesn't save. The law doesn't save. Even Abraham, Moses, all of them were made righteous by what? Faith. They looked forward to a coming Messiah. We look back at the fulfillment of that, the Messiah who has come. The law shows us our flaws, shows us our sin. Jesus alone saves. Judaism today is an empty, dead religious system. Only Jesus saves, but God sees into the heart of this man, sees that he's seeking him sincerely. We too can see that he is seeking sincerely because he's turned to the word of God. When God speaks to us, He will speak to you through the Word. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? 
all your heart. Like we said earlier, this, this scroll would have cost him a lot of money, so it shows that he really wanted to read and know God's word. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So this man is investing in knowing God. This pagan man made serious investments in trying to know him. Does your use of your time and talent and treasure reflect that God and his kingdom matters to you? The end of verse 28 tells us he's reading from the book of Isaiah. It's in verse 29 that Philip has his encounter with this thirsty soul. Spirit now says to Philip, verse 29, go over, join this chariot. Philip runs to him. Here's him reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to come up. This time it wasn't an angel speaking to Philip. No, it was the Spirit of God himself. Go and join him in the chariot or by the chariot. The book of Acts shows God tearing down a bunch of barriers. It's one of my favorite books for that reason. See, prior to this, we, we saw God tear down the barrier between Jews and Samaritans. Torn down by Philip, Peter, and John coming and marveling at all that God was doing among them. Philip gets to be a part of another barrier being torn down, and that was the barrier that existed between Jews and Gentiles. You see, a lot of rabbinic thought in the day was, well, those Gentiles are good for nothing but fueling the fires of hell. That's what they were teaching in Jesus' day. There was a hatred towards Gentiles. Now, the feelings were mutual. I'm not excusing Gentiles or Jews. Gentile is a fancy word for non-Jew. Jesus' marching orders before returning to heaven in Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the gospel had already thoroughly spread through Jerusalem. Persecution hits hard in Acts 7 and 8 and forces Christians to spread and you see them spread into the surrounding areas of where? Judea and Samaria with Philip earlier in the chapter. And now we get to see the first step taken by one of God's children to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I joke around with my, or my, my Texas friends. I say, I'm taking the gospel to the ends of the earth because Washington's on the edge of America. It took boldness, beloved, for Philip to leave fruitful ministry in Samaria to go to some desert region without having any further marching orders. But as soon as he gets there, it is then and only then that God tells him the next step. And that's often how God works. Not always, but often how he works. He doesn't usually give you the next step until you obeyed the first. God told him, go to Gaza. Philip goes. Now God says, go to that chariot. Got real specific, real quick, right? And sometimes I'm asked, well, why isn't God speaking to me? And I say, well, when was the last time he said something that you were sure of? Did you do it? Or when people tell me about the, well, the, I just, I don't, I don't read the Bible because it's just so hard to understand. I said, well, what do you do with the parts that you do understand? Because it's interesting, if we obey the parts that are easy to understand, how God will open up your mind to the things that are more challenging to understand. Did you obey the last time God told you to do something? And if you didn't, then why expect him to tell you anything else? It took boldness to go to Gaza. It would take additional boldness now to approach this wealthy, powerful Ethiopian man in his chariot. But that's precisely what the Holy Spirit tells him to do. We said the Ethiopian was a wealthy man, a powerful man. He worked for a queen, but Philip, he didn't care. Though the Ethiopian had all these things, none of them were the most important thing. This man needed Jesus. 
It's easy for us to, to walk down, my wife works on Pack Ave. It's easy to walk down Pack Ave and see people strung out in drugs and, and say, oh, they need Jesus. It's easy to say that, right? But we also, we, we often don't see someone with a big house and a nice car and important job and think they need Jesus, but they do. They do. And if anything, it might be harder to reach them than it is for the person that's strung out because they have all these barriers of pride thinking, but I'm a good person. And look, God is clearly blessing me. That's what Jews in the first century thought. That's why when Jesus said that it's as hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Don't know if you've seen a needle lately, but it's pretty small. And when he said that, the disciples were like, then who can be saved? They were shocked when he said that. Well, that idea is still around today. But you see, we, we have to be mature. We have to understand their obvious need for Jesus, whether rich or poor, whether in their right mind or lost their mind. But then sometimes, rather than question the, the person that God has sent us to, we question our qualifications to tell them about Jesus. Oh, well, I'm just, I'm not smart enough. I'm not important enough to talk to that person about Jesus. Philip could have sat there and be like, oh man, who am I? I was just waiting tables a few weeks ago and now you want me to go talk to a representative of a queen God? He didn't have that issue. He didn't wrestle with that. Why not? I told, <laughs> I told everyone last week, my wife went interacting with the big wigs in the company that she works for. She used to get real nervous. She doesn't anymore, but I said, babe, they put their pants on the same way you do. They do. Philip's approaching this chair. He puts his robe on the same way I do. Their power, wealth, knowledge meant nothing in light of eternity, and Philip understood this. This guy worked for a queen in Ethiopia, but Philip knew that he was an ambassador of the king of kings and the lord of lords. And beloved, so too are you if you are in Christ. We should never fear speaking to those who are considered to be important or powerful about Jesus. Well, I don't know if he sent me. He did. He did. Even if they're not rich or famous or powerful, we still often will hesitate and will shrink back from speaking boldly about Jesus. But why? The world is so quick to tell us that we shouldn't talk about such things. I see that, that the world doesn't hesitate to try and force its messaging on us. Why not be bold? May, may we be as bold with the truth as they are with their lies. May we be just as open about Jesus as they are open about their sin and rebellion. Verse 30 is another picture of what our walk should look like. It says, Philip ran to him. I like that little detail. It's subtle, but man, it's powerful. God said, go, and Philip went with a sense of urgency without questioning to obey the Lord. This is what it should always look like when God speaks to us. This is the only way to ensure that God will continue to speak to us if we obey like Philip did. What this also shows is Philip's eagerness to tell people about Jesus. See, if we're being honest, a lot of us, when we first got saved, that's when we were really excited. Man, we, you probably, when I first got saved, I know I wouldn't shut up about the Lord. But then as you walk with the Lord for a little while, get rejected time and time and time and time again, kind of take some stabs at the zeal, doesn't it? but we can't let it. How opposite of Philip are we so often? So many of us see evangelism as a hurdle or a burden. But Philip ran to an opportunity to tell people about Jesus, to tell someone about Jesus. And my prayer for you is that, that, that you, that I, would have that excitement like, like we just got saved. 
except now we know, hopefully we know a lot more now than we did when we first got saved. Isn't it funny how when, back then I had no knowledge and was telling everybody. And it was funny as I started to learn more and more and more and more. I was talking less and less and less and less with people. And the Lord's like, what are you doing? I didn't give that to you just for you. I gave that to you for them. Go tell them. Go help them to understand. And that's precisely what we see Philip doing, don't we? Because when he got there, he hears the eunuch reading. Back then, it was common to read aloud. Philip was able to tell what the Ethiopian was reading by simply listening alongside the chariot as he approached. I have a dear brother who we, at, at parties, everyone's sitting around having conversations. He'd be in the corner with a good book, and he'd just be reading out loud while we're all talking. And just look at him and smile. Love you, brother. It was always so awkward, but so, so beautiful because he just wanted to learn and grow. And he read out loud. Well, back then, that was more common, especially when dealing with the Scriptures. And Philip was so familiar with the Word of God, he knew exactly where it was and could even tell him what it meant. You see, this man, the Ethiopian, invested a lot of money in trying to know God, and it's very clear that Philip invested a lot of his time to know God. Why? Well, because, look, he's, he, again, he hears it. I know where that is, and I know what that means. He was serious about the Word of God. So he overhears him reading the prophet Isaiah, and what follows is this beautiful divine appointment. What we see again is what God will do with a single person and what he will do for a single person. Philip knew where God told him to be, and now he was plainly seeing why he was told to go there. And he runs to the opportunity. He, he wasted no time obeying the Lord before. He's wasting no time now seizing a clear opportunity to tell someone about the Lord it's important that we, that we recognize these moments when they come, and it's even more important that we seize them, that we take them. Because let's be honest, witnessing is challenging. It is difficult. It is awkward, especially if you don't feel that, I don't feel like I've been gifted to be an evangelist. But even when Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a pastor, he said, do the work of an evangelist. The Great Commission isn't just for people with a title in front of their name. Witnessing to people is often challenging enough, but, but when they are clearly seeking the Lord or clearly asking about your faith and your belief in Jesus or, or in the Word of God, jump on that opportunity. Don't be afraid. Jesus told the disciples, I will be with you in that moment. I will give you the very words that you are to say to them. And if you're like, well, Lord, I, I, I don't want to mess it up. He says, I love them too much to let you mess it up. Open your mouth. Let me use you. And you'll be blown away that you know a lot more than you realize once you start using it. And God told us to always be ready for such opportunities, 1 Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. So Philip asks a simple question when he gets there. Do you understand what you're reading? He's not trying to be offensive. It's a simple, respectful, gentle conversation starter, coupled with a gracious offer to explain what he was reading if, in fact, the Ethiopian wanted an explanation. His response continues to prove to us the state of his heart. He reveals that he is humbly and sincerely seeking. There's no arrogance. There's no self-righteousness. Get away from my chariot. You don't. No. His response to Philip, how can I understand unless someone guides me? He honestly and humbly says, I don't know, but I want to. I don't know, but I need someone to help me understand. This is becoming more and more rare with the Internet making everyone feel like they're an expert on everything. It's ridiculous. It seems like everyone was, was an expert in, in, in virology a few weeks ago. Now everyone is an expert in foreign affairs and 
man, we, we live in a time that Paul described in Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 7, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's, it's hard to find out what's true and what isn't when you go on the internet, when you turn on TV. Most of what you're going to hear on TV probably isn't. We just have to be so careful with what we take in. We've learned a lot from Philip, but this Ethiopian guy, he's showing us a lot too. He understood that God was worthy of his worship. He knew that if, if you want to know God, you've got to turn to the only place he can be known, and that's his word. And if you want to truly learn and grow, you must be humble enough to admit that you need help to do so. I was a school teacher for over 10 years, and I always encouraged and celebrated asking questions. You see, we're often afraid or embarrassed to ask questions, usually because people made us feel that way when we were younger. But you see, I love asking questions. I always hated when people made me feel dumb for asking. This, this is why, again, I always celebrated and encouraged questions, and it harbored an environment where people would bring me questions all the time. I still have people hit me up from Texas with questions, and I love it. They're like, sorry to bother you, you know, because the time difference is the biggest kicker sometimes. It's 8 o'clock for them, but it's 6 a.m. for me, and I'm like, let me, let, me, let me get my coffee first, and then I'd love to answer your question once my brain is firing on all caffeinated cylinders. But I love questions, even when they would ask me ridiculous questions to, to try and upset me or thinking that they were, oh, I'm going to get some laughs out of my friend. One kid was like, is there such thing as demon-possessed crickets? And I said, well, it's funny you say that. And we talked about Revelation and talked about all these things and these beasts that come up from the pit. And, you know, and that's kind of what motivated his question. He was trying to be funny, but, man, it was really something there. One young lady, she wasn't even trying to be funny, and that's what made it funnier. She was dead serious. She goes, oh, Pastor Nelly, um, what is Satan going to be doing while the Antichrist is up there ruining earth? Is he just going to be hanging out in hell eating his hot dog saying, go Antichrist, go? Or what is he doing down there? And I, I, my face just, and I laughed so hard. I actually fell over in the classroom and I felt so bad. But she, under, like, if you were there, you'd, you had to be there, had to be there. But man, we, we still talked about it. We still talked about it. Once I gathered myself and my thoughts, you see, they knew I wouldn't make them feel bad. For, for asking. They knew I would either have an answer for them, and if I didn't have it, that I would try and find it. It's an incredible feeling when we come to understand some of the great truths in the scriptures on our own, and we should try. But you see, God has gifted and placed teachers within the body of Christ to help us along our journey, and many teachers have helped me along the way become who I am today and, and are still helping me to become hopefully a better pastor and a better Christian, a better husband. In the next two verses, we see the passage that the Ethiopian man was reading. Now, the passage of Scripture says, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. A lamb before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken from the earth? God's amazing and providential grace clearly on display. The Ethiopian just so happened to be reading this incredible, amazingly specific prophecy contained in Isaiah 53. Now we know in the kingdom there is no just so happened, right? There is no dumb luck. There is no chance. There is only providence, only God's will and his guiding hand making and shaping history. He's reading the prophecies that describe the sacrificial sin-bearing work of the Messiah, the Messiah that had recently come to earth, died and rose and ascended to heaven. The Messiah that Philip knew and followed with all of his heart, the very Messiah that brought Philip to him that day. 
And the eunuch says, about whom does he say these things? Is it about himself or someone else? There was a Messianic Jew that was evangelizing in Jerusalem. There's a video on YouTube that I was watching, and, and he would use this passage. He would show them Isaiah 53 with no context, no label, no nothing. He said, read this, and they'd read it. And remember, the nation of Israel has largely rejected their Messiah to this day. He goes around, he says, who do you think this is about? What do you think this is? Who do you think it's about? And immediately they begin to say, oh, you must be one of them Christians. And this, must, this must be from your, your Christian Bible. They're Jesus. And he, you know, they're shocked when he says, it's funny you say that. It is about Jesus, but it wasn't written in the New Testament. It was actually from our prophet Isaiah. And they turn as white as I am. Isaiah wrote his book about 800 years before Jesus walked the earth. But when you read Isaiah 53, it sounds as though he's standing there in person. He's, he foretells what happens to Jesus eight centuries before it happened. And he even says why it will happen. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned away every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There have been many interpretations offered up over the years for this passage some say, well, it's Israel. Some say, oh, well, it must be Isaiah. It couldn't be either. Yes, Israel had suffered, but much of their suffering was self-induced because of their rebellion against God. And when, were they ever when did they ever suffer for something someone else did? No, it was usually something they did. Even the prophet Isaiah. He's like, well, is he writing about himself? Isaiah couldn't have been writing about himself, especially in the verses that we read. When did Isaiah take upon himself the sins of another? If we would have asked him, he said, I got my own sin. So the suffering servant was none other than Messiah. But you see, they really wrestled with that and wrestled, to that, wrestled with that to this day because the idea of Messiah's suffering was a very challenging thing for them to accept. But you see, when you read the entire chapter, Isaiah 53, I wish we had time to do that. We don't. But when you look at it, it can only be Jesus. It can only be Jesus. And that's precisely what Philip tells the Ethiopian, verse 35. He opened his mouth beginning with this scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. How many of you know the entire Old Testament points to Jesus? It does. It does. And one of the exciting things about being a student of the Bible is going in and trying to find where in all of the different allusions and types that point to him. There's no, really no better place to start from the Old Testament than that chapter, right, to point somebody to Jesus. I just encourage you to, to read it later today and just marvel again 800 years before Jesus of Nazareth ever walked the earth what would happen to him was foretold and why it was, hap was happening was foretold. It's passages like that one that make it so hard for me to understand how or why anyone would reject Jesus as Messiah. But I know why. It's pride, right? It's our love for sin. Philip talked with this man about this passage, but it didn't end there. Luke said that just was the starting point, and he takes him through. He started with common ground, good evangelism pro tip, right? Try and find common ground and then use that to introduce them to Jesus. And when they bring up the Bible, man, how much better, how much easier for us, right? Philip used Isaiah 53 to explain who Jesus was like a lamb. What he had done led to the slaughter. This is the good news, that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die, and victoriously rose again. That's what the word gospel means, simply good news. And it's the good news about how we can be made right with God. Notice as well, Philip 
you know, he preached Christ in Samaria. He preached Christ to this Ethiopian. And guess what? When he was in Jerusalem, he preached Christ. And when he gets to Caesarea, he preaches Christ. <laughs> he didn't need a different Jesus. He didn't need a different message for different audiences. Same gospel, same Christ. God doesn't need our help cleverly altering the gospel to try to reach different people, no. One message, one Christ. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. And you reach the climax, and they were going along the road. They came to some water. And the, and the Ethiopian said, oh, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he says, stop the chariot. And they go down into the water. And I love that they went down into the water. No sprinkle stuff here. No, no. Immersion baptism is clearly what you see here, not the sprinkle. He says, stop the chariot. Now, clearly, they had a lot of time to talk because he introduces them to Jesus and already had begun to talk to him. I wonder if they talked about communion too and, and talked to him about baptism because as soon as he saw a body of water, he was like, can I, can I? Of course you can. Now, depending on the translation you have, some translations go from 36 to 38. Verse 37 isn't found in the older manuscripts, but, but that's not a huge issue. If you're like, well, why is it in some and not others? Should we be bothered by its inclusion or removal? No, the intent of the passage would remain the same whether it was there or not. If added by commentators later on, we know that he made this profession of faith in the interaction. Why? Well, because Philip was willing to still baptize him. And that verse, the Ethiopian makes an audible profession is all that is included in that. But even without it, again, the text remains the same. The man's profession real because Philip, again, baptizes this man, welcoming him into the body of Christ. This man recognizing his need to respond to the gospel. As we prepare to wrap up our study, it's important to remember that the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch was done by the Spirit of God, not Philip. Philip didn't save anybody. We don't save anybody. God does the saving. We simply make ourselves available and we share the good news about Jesus and about what he's done. And we trust him with the outcome. The word of God is what changes people's hearts. Paul said it this way, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now God gifts people with the ability to teach his word, but it is his word that changes human hearts. So any believer, teacher or not, pastor or not, need only be faithful to the word of God and you can be used like now the last part his uh, teleportation they're in the water he baptizes him he did in fact believe he wanted to be baptized he declares his belief sees the truth of God knew it was for him it says and when they came up out of the water the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and they went away rejoicing and Philip found himself in Azotus, passed through, preached the gospel to all the towns in Caesarea. And at one minute, Philip is there in the water with the Ethiopian. The next minute, the Spirit of the Lord carries Philip away over 20 miles north. Man, my move to Washington would have been so much easier had the Lord taken this route. <laughs> Here we see his, he's supernaturally transported. There's no other explanation. It is a miraculous transportation here because he's taken from the waters on this road to Gaza to the Philistine city of Azotus, formerly known or also known as Ashdod. 
In Luke 4, Jesus appears to do something similar. There's a crowd wanting to kill him before his time. In John 6, the disciples are in a boat and immediately arrive to their destination on the shore. Make no mistake, again, this is a miraculous occurrence that is witnessed by the Ethiopian, that is experienced by Philip. Why did God choose to transport him in this way? I have no clue. But I can say this, that if he were to come for us today, we would get to experience something like Philip. And it'll be a lot better. He won't take you to Ashdod. He's going to take you in the air to meet him. The rapture. Paul talks about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, when every Christian will be supernaturally and instantaneously transported to meet the Lord in the air and take us to be with him. And again, that's way better than Azotus. I wish I had more for you on that. I, I mean, heck, I, I wish I could experience this, you know, this supernatural trip. Every nerd's dream, right? I'm, I'm a big nerd. I love sci-fi and comic books and all that stuff. And I'm like, man, Lord, I want to teleport. But, you know, again, that's why I hope I get to be a part of the rapture. Obviously, it didn't bother the Ethiopian man too much. Second part of verse 39 says, The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. I'm sure his jaw, he had to pick up his jaw from the waters that they were in first after witnessing Philip's strange departure. But you see, his faith was not rooted in Philip. It was rooted in God because he didn't walk away and say, oh man, but where was the guy that was teaching me about Jesus? He, he's not wrecked by his teacher being taken from him. He goes away rejoicing. Why? Because he knows who Jesus is now. He knows he belongs to him. He knows that he's been born again. And now he goes on to tell others. I would add that the greatest miracle wasn't when Philip was transported. It was when the Ethiopian got saved. When someone gets saved, that's the dead coming to life. After leading the Ethiopian to Christ, Philip continues destroying, destroying the barrier between Jews and Gentiles, proving Christ died for all. And he goes till he came to Caesarea. These are other Gentile cities that he's going to. And when we join Paul later on in chapter 9, God is going to transform that man and he's going to continue to reach the Gentile world and proof of their success is in this very room today. This was a guy God used to reach many people, but the best time for me is when he sent him, this mighty evangelist, to reach one person because Jesus' love is that great for you and I. If Jesus' death would have resulted in the salvation of only this eunuch, he would have done it. It's a love that can be found nowhere else. It's a love that we get to experience in Christ. Let's be like Philip and tell other people about it. Now, if that's a love that you've never received, I want to give you the opportunity to receive that love today. It's easy. Repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. I'm going to go before the Lord in prayer, and if that's you, if you say, I, I, I want this love, I've been looking my whole life for this love, it, it, you weren't looking for him. He was looking for you. He's been pursuing you all along, and he wants you to be his. He's calling you by name today. The only one that knows this Ethiopian eunuch's name is, is God, and he knows your name, and he's calling it today. So if you've never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus, today is the day. You are dead in your trespasses and sin, but God wants to do a miracle in you today and bring you to life. Jesus said in John 3, 3, unless a man is born again, he will by no means see the kingdom of God. So you need to be born again. And only Jesus can do that. If there's even anyone here today or anyone watching online that wants to do that, I'm going to go before the Lord in prayer. 
just saying the words doesn't do anything. It doesn't mean anything if you don't mean it. But if you do, everything can change today. Your sins can be forgiven. And then you will know the Lord of heaven and earth, the King of kings, who says, now I want to go use you to tell others about the great love that you found. Would you pray with me, dear Jesus? Thank you so much for dying for our sins. Thank you, though, that you didn't stay dead, that you resurrected from the grave. You defeated death and defeated my sin, defeated our sin. If there's even one heart here today that was waiting for, for this message, I pray today would be the day of salvation that they would repent of their sins and believe and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. I recognize that I need you. Thank you for dying for my sins and for raising from the grave. Forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, that I may be with you for eternity. And Lord, I pray that all of us whether we made that prayer the first time today or we made that prayer 20 years ago, may we be committed now to telling others about the great love that we have received. Forgive us for the times that we have withheld this glorious gospel, this great news about your love, God. Fill your people with boldness today that we may go out into this beautiful, dark place and speak of the hope that we have in you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.